Welcome back to this award-winning episode of Conversations with the Mind. I hope you all are um, doing well and staying healthy. Um, I know we certainly are. Um, Yeah, welcome back to the show. It is a good one today. Hope you like it. But first, make sure you go check out our YouTube page. That's the Mind Ops YouTube page and our website. For both of those, it's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Make sure you add that hyphen in there or you'll be taken to some other uh, site. So go check out the YouTube. You'll find video of all these uh, podcasts. And um, yeah, go check out the website where you can see we have all sorts of services that we offer. And uh, right now, you know, during this um, during this shelter at home um, part in our wonderful human history, something that we're all going to remember and our grandkids are all going to ask us about. Um, during this time, our mental health is so important as well as our physical health. So I hope you guys are finding ways to exercise. But oftentimes it's difficult to work on our mental health when we are sheltered like this. So in, a, in an effort to encourage people to go seek out um, mental help when they need it, or even just, you know, some day-to-day coaching and support through this through this process, you know, we're all going through all sorts of different grief processes and, and anxiety and depression and cabin fever and all these things. Um, so take care of yourself and come to mindops.com. Um, see what kind of stuff we offer guys. Um, and reach out to us. We're doing uh, sessions right now at a reduced rate, uh, much, you know, pretty far reduced, about 30% reduced just to, you know, hopefully, get more people to take their mental health seriously during this time. And we're doing all of our sessions through um, uh, encrypted video chat apps. So uh, no need to worry about confidentiality issues. All that stuff is taken care of. Um, And we can still meet. And availability is pretty open right now since uh, I'm working um, and doing school from home. And so, yeah, reach out to us. It will be worth it. All right, let's listen to some Arturo Complex and uh, hope your little ear holes love what you hear.
Okay, today's good news story comes from the goodnewsnetwork.org. And the article reads, when student was having trouble with math homework, teacher gave her a private lesson from her front door. Um, this was a really cool, um, very um, uplifting story amidst all this um, physical distancing that we're doing. And so this middle teacher from South Dakota um, you know, found out that his uh, 12-year-old student was having trouble understanding um, a graph and algebraic functions. And so all the schools are closed, obviously, and uh, the teacher wanted to respect the physical distancing guidelines. So went out in front of her, uh, or on her front lawn, and gave her um, some extra tutoring lessons uh, on this math um, problem for like 10 or 15 minutes until she got it. And just really cool to see people come up with um, creative ways to still get the job done. And uh, really cool to see just how much our teachers do care about, you know, the, the acquisition of knowledge um, by others. So really, really cool stuff. I'm learning a lot about uh, how to be a university teacher right now in my program. Um, so it's just really interesting to me to see... Um, just how much good there is out there in our teachers. Um, they put a lot of thought and a lot of effort into what they do, and they don't get enough praise for it. Um, it's a lot more difficult than you would think to, to design um, courses and to, to design coursework that, you know, is inclusive and, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and fits the needs of uh, the many. So really cool story. Um so now, a piece of my mind, uh, and this was interesting to me during this whole, um, this whole, you know, shelter at home thing that, you know, all non-essential things got closed, right? Well, for a day here in um, Colorado, they tried to close down um, cannabis stores. And on that day, I think there was like, so many people that like signed some petition and sent it off. And, um, so this effort at, at, you know, what could be seen as prohibition, they were pro prohibiting people from getting, um, you know, their substances, their medicines, their mind alterers. And, uh, within a day that act of prohibition was shot down and removed. So I thought that was hilarious and awesome and fascinating power to the people. Um, what was also interesting was that, both liquor stores and uh, cannabis stores were seen as essential. And, um, you know, most people can, you know, take the leap these days at least to, to understand that cannabis is a medicine for some people. Um, you know, it, it does a lot of good for mental health and physical health, chronic pain, all sorts of things. We know this right now. But most people's relationship with alcohol, um, you know, they probably wouldn't consider it medicine themselves. Although, you know, I've been an alcoholic myself and I know that sometimes I had to have that alcohol in order to feel um, steady, normal, whatever. Um, it was a dependency that I had for sure. We can totally become dependent on medicines. But back in the day, like... Thousands of years ago, uh, alcohol was a medicine. It was a mead. It was something you could go to the apothecary for and get, in a, get a certain type of brew that would um, help alleviate 
some issue, some problem. And so alcohol uh, has a long history of being a medicine, and cannabis as well. Uh, many, many thousands of years for both. And so it was cool to see both of those um, being considered essential medicines, although alcohol today in this liquor store is not... Um, not as medicinal, I think, as it used to be. And I don't think the people that uh, made it, uh, that considered it an essential good, um, were thinking in those terms. That's just where my mind went. What I really think happened, um, and I'm still glad that it happened, and I'll explain in a minute. What I really think happened is that, um, you know, cannabis was seen as a medicine. They were going to reopen the, the cannabis stores and, um, you know, people jumped on the bandwagon and said, we need our booze too. You know, we need some way to cope through this thing. We need some way to get through the day. Um, you know, you can't cut us off of that. And I'm glad that it happened, if only because um, those people who are chemically dependent on alcohol at this moment, uh, can you imagine if they shut down all liquor stores and any way to get alcohol, like those people would suffer so much and there'd be, um, you know, there's already increases and spikes in domestic violence and child abuse right now since everyone's sheltered. But imagine if uh, people couldn't get, you know, their relief from anxiety and depression and all those things that they drink for, um, you know, if your medicine is just taken away from you like that, then, it would be, there would be a lot of terrible shit going on right now. And so I think it was more of a public safety consideration than anything. Um, you know, you don't want to, I can't even imagine if they just shut down all liquor and alcohol stores, there'd probably be riots, people breaking into those places. You know, it's like when I was an alcoholic, it was like, um, it's like I was a junkie for it. You know, I would, you know, uh, search my house for all the change that I could find just so I could get a shooter or something like that. So you take all that away and uh, there's going to be some, some really messed up people out there. Um, so I'm glad it stayed open for now. Although uh, some, some other good news that can come out of all this. And I've been really trying to maintain positivity is that, you know, all sorts of positive things are coming out of it, like uh, environmental things. So we're noticing, you know, when people don't go outside as much, you know, the smog is clearing and and uh, fish are returning to certain places in the in the waterways and, and oceans and stuff like that. And so that's all great. And I'm really hoping that we as humans take this time to recognize this as a wake up call um, and see what is possible if we come out of this thing and change um, if we come out of this thing and, and like see the, the impact that we have in the environment and each other in every day-to-day -day normal, uh, I'm using normal quotation marks, like before this thing happened, right? Um, so we were polluting the shit out of the earth and we didn't care. And now we're being given a glimpse of like what the world could be like if we just calm the fuck down. Um, so that's what we need to do. We need to take a look around and try and recognize the positive things that are happening and um, being impacted 
Try not to focus so much on the negative shit. That stuff's going to be there anyway. We need to learn something from this. We don't just need to survive. We need to learn from it so that we don't continue to kill ourselves as a species. This is a wake-up call, folks, um, for everybody. And I hope that we all you know, take that time and space to, to see what can we learn about ourselves during this time? What can we learn about how our culture and our species um, does things, you know, we need to do things different. Um, so I'm very grateful uh, that, you know, that people are being forced to see this sort of thing now. Um, not so grateful ab about how it's happening. I wish it could have been a lot smoother. But um, I know for me, like, I've, sometimes I've often needed, you know, a really hard slap in the face just to get get what's right in front of me, you know. So Anyway, that's what's been on my mind. Let's get into the show. Very, very special guest today and a good friend of mine, uh, Katie Markley. Um, a lot of you may know her out there um, in podcast land. Katie Markley is a somatic-based trauma therapist. Uh, she's also a transpersonal therapist, and she does a lot of uh, work with clients through altered states work. So she's also a ketamine therapist <clears throat> at uh, the Integrative Psychiatry um, center. And if you want to reach out to her, you can, she left me her um, email that I could give to you. It's katiemarkley.com, K-A-T-I-E-M-A-R-K-L-E-Y.com. We get into all sorts of awesome stuff in this podcast. Katie, uh, is an amazing person, um, a really unique and precious friend and soul. And, um, you know, going to have her on many, many more times. I can always learn from Katie. So hope you folks enjoy. Buckle up. Here we go. through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster, and we are here for episode number 74 uh, with a good friend, and fellow colleague and peer, uh, Katie Markley. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah, I feel like we're coming through the, we're, you know, recording this through this interesting time where we're all on lockdown a little bit with everything going on with this pandemic. So I'm doing well, but also just in the midst of this bizarre time. Yeah, for sure. And um, I wanted to, you know, give our podcast like a, like a nickname or something, uh, something happy, but something that also reflects sort of like the times. And uh, for me, I'm recording from my house in my podcast studio, so I'm still in my pajamas. So I'm going to call this the pajama podcast, <laughs> even, though, even though you're you're at uh, work and uh, still out in society. Um, but anyway, um, so welcome to the show. And the first question that I always ask my 
um, guess is the same. And that question is, uh, so the title of the podcast is Conversations with the Mind. And I just want to know what that phrase means to you personally and how it lands and maybe what comes up around that phrase, Conversations with the Mind. Yeah, I mean, ever since I first heard um, the, the name of your podcast, it, it kind of generated something for me just around the work I actually do with folks with mindfulness. And um, I think Conversations for the Mind, for me, gives me a sense of this idea that we all have these different parts living within us, these different parts of our psyche, and that um, like we have to, in order to heal and resolve parts of ourselves, we have to um, be able to talk to those parts um, from the state or the role of the witness. So the witnessing part of ourselves, the higher consciousness part of ourselves has to be able to, to go in and actually see the various parts for what they are, maybe younger versions, wounded versions. Um, and so for me, um, I guess I'm always having these conversations <laughs> with my own mind and with the, the minds of my clients um, from this stance. Yeah, I love, I love how you put that because that's how I, I feel in my personal and professional life as well currently. But um, as you were saying that, like I got this image of myself when I was like in my teens and my and my early 20s like the first half of my 20s and conversations with my mind back then did not seem like it was many different voices uh that i had to as a higher being interact with and have a relationship with which i understand now like to me now it feels like all these voices are sitting at like this boardroom table and it's a circular table with all with equal voice except you know i have like an executive function above them you know I can veto them but I, I I listen to them whereas back then in my teens and 20s like all those voices were just yelling so loud at each other from across that table that it all sounded like one voice for me yeah know? yeah and I think <laughs> I love the way that visual really lands for me too I feel that way myself and I don't know exactly when I became like the director of my own conference room but I I can distinctly feel that shift and I I love helping people into that that seat as well of feeling confident that they've got this and that there's nothing wrong with them. I think that we just have really a lack of guidance in our society in particular. I can't really speak beyond the society about this piece, but I think that um, people just need the confidence that they are um, fundamentally whole and well and that there's nothing to be ashamed of or afraid of with how their psyche operates and, and just learning that like loving kindness towards themselves um, to be the kind caregiver, um, the sort of benevolent witness. I think that's going to be a tough nut to crack in this society, at least right now, because, um, you know, and my wife and I were having this conversation like last week about how, um, most Western religion is based off this idea that as soon as you're born, you're fundamentally a sinner. And so you have like this life in front of you to make up this debt that you already owe to this higher being. And if you don't do it, then you're going to a bad place. You yeah, know? Uh, absolutely. And I think that's what like, oh, like that's the thing that did not sit well with me as a kid going to Sunday school. Um, you know, I was, my mom was like this, um, freer spirit, she let me and my brother choose what we wanted to, but we still, you know, had some structure around religion when we were really young. 
-hmm. And I was just turned off by the Western model. And then so happy to find in college, you know, the Eastern models of Buddhism and Hinduism that speak of like you being born as this perfect being, this perfect, innocent, can do no wrong being. And it's up to you to sort of balance your karmic debt uh, throughout your life. You can do good deeds and you can do bad deeds and you probably will do both, but do more than more good than bad and you'll you'll be fine. Uh, it seems like the Western religious models breed a lot of like inherent fear in people's minds. And you know, so there's a lot of people in our society going around like with that fear-based mindset around themselves and their spirituality, thinking that they're like sinners already uh rather than people going around like you said and like having this idea of i am whole already like i'm perfect the way i am uh, yeah. and i can still improve and i can add to that you know that wholeness factor is not yeah, yeah that's crazy i know i i really feeling into what you're saying and and resonate with that i mean i think that Sometimes when people come into my practice, I want to talk with them about how the ultimate goal is learning more self-love and compassion. And sometimes that will really intimidate people and they'll be like, whoa, that's, that's a lot to bite off. But, you know, it's, it's just a process, just like anything else. And I think that what you're talking about is like this judo-Christian influence of um, original sin, right? Mm -hmm. And how that's really kind of woven into society is like, we do have some fundamental like badness or, or tendency towards doing evil things even you could say. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the Buddhist philosophy of basic goodness, do you know basic goodness? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, that's it, just, explain it to the audience a little bit. Yeah. That's just really turning it all on its head where it's like, actually, no, we're, we're, we're born fundamentally good. You can actually look at a baby and, I don't know how anyone could argue anything different than that there's just pure innocence, goodness, and love coming from a baby. And that it's more the experiences that we have as we're growing up and, you know, we're in, inevitably going to get wounded, we're inevitably going to be misunderstood or not be seen accurately. And it's all those experiences that can sometimes on the far end be traumas or can, can just be um, challenges or related to the inherent suffering of life that, um, that then we um, end up creating these like strategies for survival. So maybe in order to get loved and seen, we develop some kind of um, pattern that ends up hurting other people or ourselves. And it, it actually really works for us initially because where that drive is coming from is it's actually coming from a very good place. We're trying to get our needs met to survive in the world. And as we get older, that strategy actually stops working for us and it maybe becomes more maladaptive. And I think that's where people go to seek counseling or, you know, support because they're like, I do this thing and I'm so messed up. And, and it's actually like, no, if we go way back to why you started doing that thing, it was a brilliant strategy mm -hmm. that came out of your basic goodness and, and really innate wisdom. And now it's like a confused attempt at love. It's yeah. a confused attempt at goodness. Yeah. I think you could apply, that uh you know that structure to almost any you know mental health disorder and i'm using quotations here because you know the dsm has its own wacky political history that is underlying the diagnostic thing but um like you could apply that to just like depressed mindset or anxious mindset or or diagnostics like um, reactive attachment disorder or something like that where 
you know, something happened in somebody's past and to get that anxiety and put them in fight or flight was helpful for them to protect themselves as that survival. And they learned that this is like the safest way for me to go through the world and accepted that into like their identity. Like it, it went down one level from being a coping skill to now this is like who I am and how I deal with the world. And that can be the same for depressive mindset. I was, I've been depressed in the past and been in my active alcoholism and addiction and, um, you know, times of suicidal thoughts and crazy things like that. And, um, well, I shouldn't say crazy things because suicidal thoughts are extremely normal to, for people to have. But for me in that moment, like, that's what it felt like. Like I was, I was going. Felt out of control. Yeah. So off of what my baseline was, um, that I learned like those were like my coping mechanisms. And once they became part of my identity, they became destructive in nature, you know? Uh, I had to reel it all the way back and figure out like, oh, that's the reason why this addiction probably manifested. This is why, you know, this uh, depression happened here and, and go back and heal that stuff so that I could like fast forward to where I am now and sort of like uh, have that part of my life uh, compartmentalized, but at, like in a healthier way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was wondering. Um, sorry, could you tell people what you do? I want. I just want people to know, like, what you do for a living, but what you also do um, for the pleasure of it. Yeah. So I'm a transpersonal psychotherapist. So I'm really acknowledging the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. Um, I do somatic-based art therapy in my practice. Um, and typically people come to see me, um, adults who will acknowledge like I have trauma, I have a trauma history and they wanna work through that with support. So my work is always coming through this trauma lens. Um, and I also really value working with altered states of consciousness. So right now I'm also working in a, a ketamine assisted psychotherapy clinic here in Boulder. Um, it's called the Integrative Psychiatry Center. And um, I'm a MAPS trained therapist in working with PTSD and MDMA. So hoping that I'll be able to use that training here soon for the expanded access um, once it's available. Nice. Um, I love what you're doing because it's, it's very similar to the path that I'm following as well. And uh, I thought that would be, this would be an interesting time to, tell the audience sort of like how we met and how we know each other. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I first met you in our uh, licensure classes or we both were becoming licensed addiction counselors at the same time. And Mm -hmm. we had a class together and hit it off. And then, um, you know, it was only like a two day training, but at the end of the two day training, you and I were already talking about like, Oh, we need to get together and, you know, have an experience like this, like an altered states experience. And, um, and then we found ourselves again, uh, sort of in this small group of people involved with the Native American church and uh, doing a teepee peyote ceremony, um, which was beautiful. And uh, that was our first um, sort of other consciousness experience together. And uh, I have very fond memories of that night. I still hold on to some of the, um, the visions that I had and the, the integration um, that I had with a lot of like spirit animals and things after that particular ceremony. Um, yeah, I was wondering how, how fondly, how much do you remember of 
of sort of our history and how we got to know each other. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I was actually, my mom was asking me what I was doing this morning and I told her about the podcast and she's like, well, how do you know Shane? And I was like, it's actually a great story how we met in this kind of unusual setting where we were training to be addictions counselors because it's, it's an interesting pairing to be a medicine person to work with psychedelics and then to also be an addictions counselor. And I, I think that that's a really cool, um, those are two really cool worlds that you and I both bridge. I don't know a lot of folks that do that. Um, and I think for me, when I went to, to study to be an addictions counselor, that was the driving motivation under the whole thing is like, how do I validate um, my position and make sure that I'm um, doing the best job I can in bringing um, validity and, and uh, knowledge to the field of altered states work. So, mm -hmm. and I think that that's where you're coming from too. I'm pretty sure that that was, I just sensed that from you, that that was a driving force. Yeah. Um, well, for me, I kind of just fell into the addiction counseling track. Uh, I mean, I have my own history of being an addict of many things. Um, and then my own experiences in inpatient and outpatient treatments and like all the, all the 12 step stuff I've done. And, um, I have that background, but, um, it wasn't until, uh, that way back in the day, I had a partner who just said like, you should, you should do the, uh, you should become an addiction counselor. Like you'd be good at it. And I kind of just like blew it off. I'm like, no, like, I don't want to do that. Like I'm already doing my own addictions work every single day. And, um, and I go to meetings all the time and I don't want to keep hearing people's stories and stuff, but I fell into it because I started working for an agency up here um, that needed a clinician who had an addictions credential. And so they paid for me to go through with it. And uh, so I was just like, yeah, you know, if you're going to pay for it, I might as well do it. And, um, and I already had my master's degree. So I said, let's just go straight for the, the licensure instead of take all the other steps to get there. And, that's what I did, and um, since then, I've just been so grateful that I did go through the training because it gave me the, the entire clinical side of addiction uh, that I needed and all the education around the science and all the personal experience that I've had from uh, being you know, to, to the bottom and back, and um, it just like helped me combine those two and made me a really good, really efficient um, addictions counselor that clients seem to you know when they come in to see me they tell me like I connected with you right away like I saw your tattoos all over your arms and you look like our type of people and I'm like I am your type of people <laughs> you know like <laughs> I've been there done that and it just like right away the rapport uh it starts building really fast uh -huh. and so yeah I kind of just found I fell into that addiction counseling, but it's been tremendous, uh, a tremendous journey and experience. And I learned so much about myself and that's one of the areas of my life. I get so much like uh, gratitude and just mm -hmm. self love feeling from is when clients come in and they, and they tell me, you know, or they contact me years later and they're, they're like, Hey, you know, you are a big part of my life. I've been sober for a number of years and I'm like, Mm -hmm. Oh my God, this is why I do this thing. And uh, like, it's giving me goosebumps right now just thinking about it. Yeah, I feel you. I, yeah. I appreciate what you're saying. I can hear the heart of it, you know, as you're talking. And I've definitely been at places in my life too where 
you know, it's interesting how we get here. Like I being a therapist even like is not something that was like a long-term plan that I had sketched out and followed. It just really happened to, upon my path. And I'm so glad that it is what I do now because it enables me to continually work on myself. And it's like helped my path to be, I think a lot more um, driven towards personal growth than it ever would have been otherwise. But, but yeah, sometimes I, I paused and thought like, you know, if my life for some reason ended right now, in some way, I think my soul could be at peace just knowing that I've had all these really valuable moments and connections with, with working all these, with all these people over the years. Um, and I think that that's what everybody strives to feel that they've made an impact. And so it's, it's been such a gift. Yeah. Sure. Um, but I think the second half of your question was like how, how it intersected with my interest in psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Um, and that connection for me is still a little fuzzy, although my first substance I ever imbibed was LSD at, <laughs> at 16 years old. Um, and so I can trace like that's like the origin of any altered states work with medicines um, and how important and formative those experiences were. You know, I always kept that with me until I was at a place where I could go back and like re-examine my connection to that. And that, and it just happened to be like right at the same time that I met you and we just started chatting and that peyote ceremony that we, we went to was the first time that I had re-engaged with psychedelics in a mindful, spiritual, ceremonial way. Um, because back in the day it was all recreational um, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, even though there were, spiritual insights and benefits and feelings that came with some of those recreational experiences like i always carried that with me and said this is something important like altered states are important um and they're important teachers you know it's like yeah 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 it definitely helps us get to places i don't think we can really get to otherwise um, we have too much stuff in the way and it, I love hearing that piece from you because it just kind of confirms what I already felt I knew, which is when we first met in that setting, this addictions counselor training. Um, I mean, there's always so much fear, I think, in the professional realm of psychotherapy around uh, psychedelics because there's so there was so much misuse in the general population for years and, you know, their schedule one substances. And so um, I think that when I, I remember leaning in to sort of talk with you about the potential of doing a ceremony together and feeling that it was edgy and risky, mm -hmm. but just feeling really drawn to, to like feeling like I had to ask you if you wanted to um, be part of that. And, and it was so great because your response immediately was relieving. I could tell like that was for you. And um, it just is great to look back on like how I almost could have missed the opportunity had I not been listening, but there was this voice in the back that was like, yeah, Shane needs to be there and you know it, it was very true so mm -hmm. do you do you have any particular stories or memories from that that night in the teepee that you can that you can share yeah I mean that first time that we were in the teepee together I think that ceremony for me was all about um, really recognizing how different medicines different substances have like a unique vibrational imprint, a unique healing capacity. And for me, I became so aware um, that peyote 
as a medicine is all about um, humbling, uh, humbling oneself. And, you know, part of the ceremony is getting well. So it, it really, uh, you just, can, like that, just for the audience, they, they know what getting well means. <laughs> it's literally purging, like throwing up, um, yeah. in their tradition, they believe you like you're purging up some, some stuck spirits or stuck energy or, or stuckness in yourself and getting it out of your body. And there's a whole ceremony that goes into the disposal of it so that that stuff doesn't return to you. It's quite beautiful. But yeah, I always thought it was so beautiful how there's so, it's someone's job to come with a shovel and scoop it up, scoop up the, the vomit and, and take it out of the teepee. And after it's taken out, there are herbs thrown on the fire to sort of cleanse the air. And um, it's sort of seen like this is negative um, energy that has been stuck in you that is now moving out. They put it in a hole that they've prepared in the ground ahead of time. And then at the end of the ceremony, all the getting well from everyone is in this one place they cover it up they bury it and they pray over it and that that is um i just thought that was such a beautiful way of looking at how we take care of um ourselves and and uh, the actual physical matter of this work that it's not just um concepts it's real you know when you're getting rid of these old wounds and so um, yeah, I just remember being deeply humbled by this process of getting well and also just extreme physical discomfort because in a peyote ceremony, you're up all night, you're sundown to sun up, uh, sitting upright, holding a sort of dignified posture because you're really wanting to, to have like reverence for the medicine and the ceremony as a whole. And you're staring at the fire all night and it's a very disciplined practice. And um, I've come to through through those ceremonies really respect native american traditions um and how they they seem to be sort of aligned with some buddhist philosophies for me just around like suffering being part of life and if you can just meet suffering um in a in a gentle but head-on way and just look at it and be with it that then you kind of pierce through this thing where you're no longer afraid or cocooned but you're, you're really free because you're able to just um, feel the temperature shift, you know, whether you're hot or cold, you're able to just accept it and not have to like rush to fix it right away. Um, and so I just, I think through the physical elements um, of, and the endurance and the suffering of the ceremony, I, I came to just feel how humbled the medicine made me and everyone. And um you'll probably remember this, but like, you know, in the morning at the end of the ceremony, there's this time where everyone just gets to talk a little bit more. It's less formal. And I just felt the authenticity of everyone just so palpable. And, and that's my favorite time of the ceremony always. It's just, everybody's been so humbled and then you're just so real together. Yeah, it was beautiful. Um, I've been back a, a few times since then and uh, for the same type of ceremony and uh yeah i'd say that's my favorite part as well as emerging from the teepee and just seeing the landscape out there um just glow with this life you know um and then well, actually one of my favorite parts of the ceremony too is the sweat lodge afterwards um and that's also a, a super challenging part of the experience um you know i don't know how long you sit in there for like two hours and uh, the temperature is like 200 degrees or something like it is it's boiling in there. Uh, loud 
chanting and drumming and singing. And um, that was actually where I had most of my um, connections with my ancestors was in the sweat after the teepee ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, where the only thing you can see in there is just the, these, uh, these rocks that are placed in the middle and they're so white hot that you can see like red cracks in, in the rock. They've been um, on fire all night and you know from those cracks like you, I, I don't know I connected with like this um, this sense of like like magma like lava like mm-hmm. ancient ancient stuff buried deep deep in the earth um, and it has it had spiritual energy flowing from it it was amazing to commune with that energy uh, I also had this experience in that teepee that night where we're all sitting in a circle, like cross-legged around the fire, and um, I feel like this scratchiness on my leg, mm-hmm. uh, on the skin of my leg, and I'm wearing pants, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. It feels a little weird, and then I was like, no, that feels like something in my pant leg. And I reach up in my pant leg and just like pull this thing out and throw it towards the fire, and it was this huge spider. Um, there's a huge spider that had crawled up my pant leg during the experience and I fling them out towards the fire and um, the guy sitting next to me saw me do it and he saw the spider too like we were both looking at it and we looked at each other and he's like yeah I saw it and uh, then the spider like started crawling toward back towards me and um, I kind of had to brush it away because it was, it was really scary in that moment. Uh, but the, the guy next to me and I shared that experience. And He's like, that's real. <laughs> yeah, right. And from that, you know, I figured out like, uh, you know, I had, I'd never really looked into like spirit animals or anything. Uh, I thought that was a little kooky for me. Um, but after that experience, I was like, this thing had like some kind of connection with me. It didn't hurt me, but it wanted me to know that it was there uh, and it, it wanted me to know it was there for me, uh, for some reason, healing or, you know, I took it as healing and, um, I looked into, you know, spider spirit animals and, and, um, uh, not too far, but, uh, you know, found, you just start finding like these connections once you, you pay attention to these little things like that, that, that you'd brush off. But, um, I don't know, I got curious about it and you start uncovering these things. They're like little treasures of yourself, of your mind that you, you get to you get to uncover every day it's so exciting mm-hmm. that's awesome. you say is your favorite part of the work that you do like it is it is really exciting and cutting edge work and um yeah but what's what's the most exciting piece of what you do I, yeah i think that well so the frame that i'm <laughs> like how do i start um the, the most exciting part is definitely in the realm of the altered states work. And anytime I'm doing some altered states work with someone, whether it's being in a peyote ceremony or uh, doing the ketamine work or the MDMA work I've been trained in, um, it's really preparing people for the, the way that they're to navigate their like spiritual and psychic space when they're in this altered state getting them prepared for the fact that it could be scary, that they, they might have a difficult time and how they're, how they're to navigate that, how they're to navigate that because it is quite um, an opportunity to even take a, an experience that could be bad or seem like, oh no, I, I shouldn't be doing this, right? And, and actually take it and, and move through it and make it 
make that part of the goodness of the experience, make that part of um, how somebody feels resilient and strong. And so I think preparing people, but then also meeting them in, in those moments where they're scared and they're challenged and um, they're just kind of at the height of their um, difficulty in their journey. Um, that's my favorite part is holding the role of just being the rock, being, being the solid trusting guide and um, kind of leading them back to their own um, inner healing intelligence. That's, I think that's the sweet stuff right there. Yeah, when someone wakes up to that realization that uh, we are our best healers, um, you're like, yes, you got it. Uh -huh. you, know, you know, you don't need me anymore. You got this thing. Uh, yeah, when clients come to that realization and really embrace it and lean into it and and start living life that way, um, all, I, all I've ever seen is progress, uh, number one, when people adopt that mindset. But yeah, it feels good to... In that sense, it feels good to not be needed, you know, as a therapist, like, wow, like I really helped this person um, transition to who, you know, who, who they wanted to be or what they were meant to be or whatever that means, you know. Yeah, because I think that the altered states experience is really just like a, it's like a microcosm of life in general. And it's like any, anything that we learn to do in that state, any way that we learn to work through difficult times then we have that for our whole life and I think that it applies in times like we're in now you know where there's so much uncertainty and fear going around and how do we um, employ this ability to trust and move through yeah so I want to go back to what you said uh, this this Buddhist uh, Native American philosophy of suffering as being part of life um, that's uh that was when I first read that. Um, that felt so good to read that in words. Like I had been living my entire life. I think I was like 21, 22, mm -hmm. suffering so bad, but denying that I was suffering and just drowning it with alcohol and things like that. And as soon as I read that phrase that life is suffering, you know, or or it, I think that was as simple as the phrase was life is suffering it's like I could like take a breath like oh this is normal like what these challenges I've been feeling my entire life like this this is a part of the process this is what it's supposed to be about um rather than like I, I no longer felt like there was like something inherently wrong with me you know um that the suffering I was experiencing was actually good that was the first time I was able to see suffering as necessary and good and uh, something that I wanted to um, not like in a not like in a masochistic way like engage with it but I wanted to understand my own suffering and was willing to go through some more suffering in order to reap the benefits from from doing that you know yeah, yeah. so can you talk more to that like um, your experiences or, or what you've learned about yourself through, mm -hmm. through that understanding, that lens on the world, because I think it's just a perspective that we can take. Like mm -hmm. we can we can see life as you know inherently suffering and and doing our best to relieve the suffering, um, you know. And there's so many different ways of, of doing. It. I have a oh here, it's on my uh, coffee water bottle. See if you can see that. 
Existence is pain. Yeah. Yeah. So I, Rick and Morty. <laughs> yeah, I love that Rick and Morty quote. Um, Cause I was like, yeah, that's like, that's Buddhist philosophy right there, but he's happy about it. You know, Mr. Mises has a huge smile on it. He's like, mm-hmm. I'm ready to go. Let's solve a problem. You know? Mm-hmm. So what, yeah. What's your experience been around um, this idea of suffering as a part of life? Yeah. Um, I guess it's just, I mean, I just see it as everywhere. Like, you know, we get in, entrenched in these ideas like, oh, I should be more happy. Um, I have felt in my life, you know, what's the meaning of life? Oh, it's to achieve things and to be happy, right? But if you leave yourself with just that, then I think it's a setup for for having dark night of the soul, for feeling really scared when you're not achieving that because really like the the hard things that we go through and the, um, I've come to feel that the hard things that we go through and the um, suffering is really part of the medicine that like humbles us, like we're talking about and and helps us to develop wisdom and, and helps us to, I think, just tap into more than the, the superficial and the mundane, more into the sacred. So um, yeah, I mean, you spoke earlier about growing up with this uh, Catholic, Christian background? Um, no, like, not, not really any sort of religious background. It, it was more open, but um, I think as a way for my mom to like get a break from us kids when we were younger, she would put my brother and I in Sunday school when we were like five and six. And so I, I had the Sunday school experience, not religious at all. But then in military school too, they forced us to go to, I think it was Catholic mass twice a week. And that, yeah. that was pure pain for me to sit through. I can imagine. Yeah, I I grew up. So my parents are both Catholic, but they were both sort of on the sides of their family that like they were the they were the kids or maybe just part of the the family that wasn't really adhering to the Catholicism. And so but they still sent me to Catholic school. um, But they basically encouraged me to be able to think for myself, which was such a gift. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I remember going through Catholic school all the way through high school and having to go to church and knowing this pain you're speaking of and just not really understanding it or feeling that it ever resonated with me and and feeling like we we were all just sort of going through the motions together without feeling any of the inspiration of it and um then when i was a senior i had this terrible tragedy happen where um my dad ended up taking his own life and in catholic philosophy it's sort of like well you go to hell when you take your own life and I remember going back to school after this had happened uh, just days after really I'm still mourning and grieving and um, in our religion class our teacher had this whole like curriculum where she was talking about um, like hell and purgatory and and death and and she just kind of carried on with the curriculum because I think she didn't know what else to do and I remember it being so incredibly awkward because my dad had just technically gone to hell in this philosophy and I remember like at 17 I was like looking at my peers and everybody was completely horrified and stunned and I was also horrified and I just remember actually like my consciousness expanding in that moment and being like this isn't wisdom. (laughs) This isn't like how one relates to wisdom. It's like you have to be able to adapt and there's always a way that it makes sense and it it just didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think going from that place, I like right after high school, I took time off and I traveled and I ended up finding a Buddhist retreat center um, in Australia, I think I was. Um, And that was kind of my introduction to this whole like idea of uh, potentially reincarnation and life 
uh, being suffering. And it just really resonated to me uh, having my own suffering of that grief, that this was part of life and nothing was necessarily wrong, but that there was a lot to be um, gained through it. Like it couldn't be for not, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. just arbitrary suffering. It's like suffering and um, like there's gems in there. Yeah, so I have a, a question for you that I've asked myself before when like trying to, you know, they tell us in our psychology training, like never do self-analysis, never diagnose yourself, right? But I think that's like the first thing we try and do when we get our first DSM is like, huh, let me see how I fit these criteria. Um, and so I feel like, you know, most of us, well, all of us, because suffering is inherent in life, um, we've all experienced suffering. We've all experienced trauma, um, trauma at various levels. I'm not saying everyone's is the same, but um, we've all experienced this aspect and we can all sort of like connect around this. Um, but then there's a whole nother kind of suffering that I used to engage in that others do as well, but not everybody. And that is uh, self-imposed suffering. So rather than just experiencing, you know, the normal sufferings of life, you know, living sick, seeing, watching, uh, seeing sickness around you, especially right now, seeing death. Uh, this is all experiencing of suffering that is normal parts of life um, that we all have to deal with. But then there's some of us get into this, this, uh, this pattern where we've felt enough of that external suffering that we want to impose some sort of control over our suffering because Otherwise, it feels completely out of our control, like we're at the behest of the world and, mm -hmm. and there's nothing we can do. And so we want to exert some control over that. And so we start causing things to happen in our life or we start, like for me and my addiction, that was a big piece of it. Like, how can I actively, you know, kill myself and, and hurt myself with this substance and do stupid things and put myself in, at risk and in danger? Um, so at least when I know when and how the suffering's coming at me kind of thing. Yeah, and I, and I can sort of guess how it's gonna turn out, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to just like, yeah, just, I don't know. I feel like it's a different kind of suffering. Um, it's, it's, you know, probably related to the dark night of the soul, like you mentioned. I keep hearing that phrase come up, um, but I don't think I have a full understanding of where that phrase came from and what the author meant by 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 that when they said it like to me that it means more like um seeing your shadow working with the shadow um the parts of yourself that you have trouble looking at and trouble dealing with um but are so beneficial to form relationship with sorry now i'm rambling so no i think it's well said i'm feeling you and, and i'm thinking back too as you're saying like where does that come from i, I definitely know that it came that um term came to me in my transpersonal psychology education, but I can't pull the source. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, <clears throat> that I can definitely relate to this dark night of the soul concept. And for me, I don't, I don't think I've had um, any personal struggles like the ones you're talking about where I was really imposing the suffering on myself. Um, I feel like I had a large dose of suffering sort of come my way inadvertently, and then I had to kind of metabolize that. But something I did get into, which I think is along the same veins, is just um, 
uh, really pushing myself in outdoor pursuits, um, even beyond like where I felt like I, I had capacity, like kind of flinging myself into these really difficult challenges, um, climbing mountains and rock climbing and, and just putting myself in situations where I would actually dread going to do it but I would know that I needed to approach it and needed to work through it because afterwards there was this just bolstering of confidence and con connection to the ineffable basically mm -hmm. um, by meeting such fear and challenge. You know, it's like, I think it's definitely different than what you're talking about, but. Right, but um, it's touching on that self-suffering for sure. Um, I like what, what I, I was just referring to just um, more like self-destructive aspects, but. For sure in my athletics, I've been an athlete my whole life and um, pushing myself past what I think my capability is, like you're talking about with the climbing mountains and you know, you take on these, um, these challenges just outside your comfort zone uh, in athletics or you know, in relationships or in whatever. And it's like, those are, the, those are the things that shape who you are. Those are the things that you look back and you can you can recall in great detail those moments um, of, you know, self-imposed suffering. You know, it's like, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to suck. And I know it's going to suck, but I'm still going to do it. And okay. it's that thing, that, that sort of acceptance and also, and I'm still going to do it. I'm going to move forward through this. I'm going to overcome this thing. I think that's what helps shape like all these things, karma and, life circumstance and all this stuff. Yeah, I think that's, you know, um, I've got two daughters, little stepdaughter and a little like almost two year old daughter. Um, and that's just become a big family value for us. Just really wanting to push our kids to experience things, particularly in the outdoors, but just in life where they have to, to go into it saying like, this isn't gonna be fun necessarily. It's gonna be type two fun. <laughs> And at the end, I'm going to be really glad I did it. And so in lots of ways, just helping to expose them to that concept and not like, we're just going to be cozy and happy all the time. Did you call it type two fun? Mm -hmm. That's hilarious. I'm going to... never heard of this term? Type no, two. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> yeah. Because it's it. like, it's, it's definitely not fun with a capital F. It's, it's the type two fun. <laughs> yeah. The, the fun comes in the second phase. You know, when you complete it. Yeah, um, when you're like standing at the, the top of the mountain or at the end of the match and you're like so glad it's over. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of thing. Yeah, okay. So I want to, I definitely want to get into talking about uh, motherhood and parenthood and what that's like for you. But first, uh, I think to lead into that, I just want to, um, to touch a little bit more on the idea, and this, this is sort of like a dual question. So... On, on one part of the question, um, you know, it's important that I guess we talk about, um, and we have been a little bit talking about our own experiences of self-work and, and altered states work on ourselves and our own paths um, down that. But there's also this, this thing within our field, um, and there's nothing really written too much in our field as far as like ethics codes and how we should you know, conduct ourselves, but this, we, we share conversation around these issues still. And one of the things that comes up quite often is uh, how important it is for a practitioner of this kind of work, of altered states work, to have had uh, previous experience in these realms themselves and also 
even more beneficial that they have an ongoing practice themselves. You know, in, in regular psychotherapy, um, you know, it's often suggested that therapists have their own therapists, you know, that they're, they're getting additional help as well. And so for you, like, can you talk about uh, how important do you think it is that practitioners of this kind of work that we do have a current practice of their own? And maybe if you could, uh, well, you've already spoken to some of your transformational work, but if anything comes to mind, Viola, uh, I would love to hear about it. Yeah. Um, and it's such a big question, so I'll try and answer and then feel free to help pin me down if I'm not getting getting into it enough. But it's like the first thing that comes to mind is, is just um, an experience I had when I started working at the ketamine clinic because I actually started working at the ketamine clinic having all kinds of other altered states experiences, but never having done ketamine. Um, and for me, not really ever feeling drawn to that substance. Like I am not really drawn to this disassociative experience. Um, not really seeking an ego death experience. Not that that's always what people have when they're um, doing ketamine, but it on the far end of the experience can be common. And so um, I was, I was never drawn to that substance. And, and so um, in experiencing it in order to kind of start as a clinic in the clinic, that's the policy is everybody who starts working there has to at least know what they're <laughs> providing, which I think is essential. But part of what was really valuable about it for me is that before I got the injection, because we do the intramuscular injection as well as the IV administration there. So before I got the injection to experience the ketamine session, I remember being so incredibly nervous, which was shocking to me because I feel like excited to navigate these, these realms. And, you know, I felt very trusting of the therapist that was going to be guiding me through. And it was so helpful for me just to understand, even coming from my position, how terrifying it is to step in and do this work. And and now I really hold that for everyone when they come in. I, um, I really understand how brave it is and how much um, they're really relying on my confidence, um, which in part comes from my experience. And so I think that's the other value is just like really um, knowing my own internal landscape and being able to use that kind of as a map or a imprint for other people when they're having their experience. I, I sort of know where they are. Um, and I know the value of um, not only learning the tools, but practicing the tools that help one to navigate difficult experiences, because I think that that's what we really need when we go into this uh, altered states work is like, how do we really work with difficult experiences? Um, so yeah, I, um, have had, you know, my hand held and I've cried through, through many different experiences. Um, I think that it's been essential to have those guides. Am I answering your question? Help yeah, me. totally. No, keep going, keep going. That's great. I, I want to hear more about the tools because um, that's a big part of, uh, I do psychedelic integration therapy, but people come to me both before and after their, their home medicine sessions. And, um, and this is often something that we talk about in the beginning and coming from a sports psychology background myself, um, I'm all about uh, mind hacks, like how we can cognitively, you know, train into ourselves uh, neural, new neural pathways to make our functioning more efficient. And so, um, you know, we often in my pre-integration sessions, we'll talk about developing like 
skills around mindfulness, around uh, awareness of the breath, around uh, you know having some sort of mental visualization or uh, an anchor, something mm -hmm. that you can um, bring yourself back to if you're experiencing the challenge. Uh, we talk about developing skill sets around um, like letting go and and trusting and even like some mantra work mm -hmm. using mm -hmm. mantras as tools to keep you centered and focused uh, during the experience. So what are some of the tools that, that you found useful? Uh, I know you, you said you have a background in art therapy too. And I think that's a huge tool for uh, after the experience. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, what else? Yeah, so I think like first and foremost, the sort of groundwork is um, helping people to understand that the, the general attitude, which is like, you don't want to clench down around an experience. You don't want to contract. There's a certain amount of contraction that's going to be uh, inevitable when you come into a, a realm where things are new and uncertain. It's just a, a typical response. The defense mechanism, right? It's, yes. it's, it's an evolutionary thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's really normal. But what it does is it adds an unnecessary element that that um, really doesn't add anything good to the experience. And it doesn't help you move through, you know, contraction doesn't help you move through. So really preparing people for that, um, as to be expected, and also sort of giving people a somatic experience ahead of time around what's it like to open and allow what's it like to, um, move out of our head space and down into the core of our body to, to bring our awareness to our chest and our belly and to really just be a body. I think that's a huge skill that I try and coach people on being a somatic therapist is like, we live so much from this cognitive place um, to survive and to live in society and that that's actually not needed. You're safe here and you can just be a body. You can feel into the sensations that are present um, and navigate um, with the sensations as your guide, you can navigate with the music as your guide. Um, so having you know m music prepared that is going to feel safe and good and, and not jarring to people when they're um, in altered states. Um, and then also in that framework is just this uh, trust that you hold as the guide in their process, in their inner healing intelligence that like everyone's system again, has a pull towards goodness, has a pull towards health. And that if you, if you give it optimum conditions, if you give a system optimum conditions, it's going to move right towards health. And so uh, helping the client with that psychoeducation piece and, and making sure that they're actually on board with that and that they believe that they can internalize that um, they do know the way through and that their system is working with them, not against them. And so, um, we always have that framework to relate back to. Yeah, I love that, um, you know, always moving towards health uh, mindset because, um, yeah, at least in our culture, we're so focused on disease and like, literally like dis-ease, like we're just like so focused on things that could go wrong rather than like what is actually going right all the time. You know, our bodies and, and minds for the most part are functioning optimally all the time because they're they're always seeking that homeostasis and I think you know I never really bought into that until you know I found the science behind that and you know that's basic biological philosophy and theory um, you know we know that you know earth systems and animal systems they always move towards optimal homeostasis plant life especially 
we'll see, you know, when, when this Corona thing um, hit and certain countries stopped commuting, like the, the, the air above their countries started clearing off, right? We're going to see how the earth uh, has been, I mean, we've been seeing how we've been destroying it, but we're going to see how it responds to some of these little breaks that it's getting. Uh, I hope that that's like a wake up call for us. And that's one thing too, like uh, we we're talking about suffering being a part of life. Like I, I feel like really sad for everyone who has to deal with the Corona itself or with any fallout from that. Like we're all going through our own stuff. And certainly there's a lot of people going through a lot worse than I am. And so I wanna name that first. Um, but another part of me that sort of ascribes to this Buddhist philosophy, um, you know, relaxes a little bit and sees it, you know, maybe from that witness position and sees that, you know, this virus is not, it's just not scary to me. Uh, you know, like death is not scary to me. Um, these, you know, these are just you know, these are just cycles. This is just part of life. It's suffering, but there's always going to be a good thing that comes from suffering. There's always going to be a positive thing that comes from it. And so that's what I've been trying to focus on amidst this quarantine and things like that is like, what's the positive that's coming from this and the environment's like, taking a break and we're all like returning home and connecting to our families. And we're all like, we all are getting this break from this reality that's literally killing us and it's literally killing the place that we're living. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you're talking about like the, con like the, I think the natural contraction around something like the coronavirus is so many things like what's the unknown impacts for society, the economy, right. the, the uh, global world and how we trade and how we travel and are we going to lose freedoms and, are we going to lose people we love? So there's all these natural contractions and then the uh, expansion, which follows, it's just like breathing contraction and expansion is part of all experiences. The expansion is like, Oh, well, there's going to be these benefits. Like I, I was thinking about this even before I saw like the first article about, I think the fish coming back in um, Venice to the canals. Mm. I read something about that. I was like, this has got to be really good for the environment, all the social isolating. Um, and so I think that for, for me, I'm, I'm not necessarily scared of getting the virus itself, but I am afraid of the unknown, like the new times we're going to be living in. And I think it's undeniable that, that things will be shifting to some degree. And I think that's where I, I feel some inherent contraction. It's scary. I just, the unknowns, that's like the biggest work being comfortable with that. I don't know who really is <laughs> entirely comfortable with the unknown. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that it's a good opportunity to just notice when we are contracted and then help our systems move into that openness. Um, and, you know, just to go back to your question a second ago, if you don't mind, mm -hmm. around specific tools, because I think it's applicable here too, like breath work, um, you know, working with the breath in a conscious way, even if that's just simply deepening the breath and bringing it more fully into the body. 
um, contact with other people, you know, connection is one of our main resources. And so we know that we have this social engagement system wired into our nervous system. And that's, you know, in part our mirror neurons, our ability to be able to see somebody else's expression, somebody else's emotional tone and read that their nervous system is actually okay and regulated. And, and if we are dysregulated, we can actually borrow someone else's nervous system by looking in their eyes and, and feeling into their okayness. And so really um, uh, holding a lot of value in, in that social engagement system when I'm guiding for people in altered states that um, it's, it's really my job to be the most uh, the strongest and the most stable nervous system in the room, no matter what. So hearkening back on onto the trust that um, that I have and that they they can have with me. Um, so I think it's like, don't be afraid to use your resources that you have as far as connection. Um, and we're seeing that right now in the world. I think people are connecting in these online platforms more than ever. Um, and I know that my family's connecting more than we normally do and that's been a really beautiful benefit of this time um uh we've definitely been having a lot more conscious conversation we've slowed down and um as weird as it is to say i feel like our home life is thriving <laughs> amidst this really chaotic global scene yeah do you ever um what in regards to these skills um uh, for navigation do you ever you ever get any like resistance from people? Um, I guess I'm thinking of, I've had some experiences where uh, I've had people wanting to try and hold too much onto their normal coping skills that they're used to, like distraction and, um, you know, uh, I don't know, for instance, movement and, and certain ticks and things like that. Um, and they're a little more resistant to learning these new skills, these new techniques. Um, but I find like, I don't know, these people to me seem to be more uh, Western oriented in, in thought um, because a lot of the, the skills that we're talking about, you know, connection to the breath and, and mindfulness and stuff like that, to, to a lot of people in our society that still sounds like, um, like mysticism, you know, like uh, how is paying attention to my breath? going to help me you know and the science is is catching up and is proving more and more of these things right every day but but still we get this resistance and so when i talk about it i oftentimes like to say you know these are kind of like superpowers that you're going to i say that too <laughs> the superpowers that you're going to uh you're going to get and yeah. you're going to look around at your peers and see that your peers don't have these superpowers and it's going to make you move through the world way more effectively um and when i put it in those terms it like i think it engages like this little kid in them that's like "Ooh, i get to like be able to tune in to people's mirror neurons and feel what they're feeling Ooh, i get to you know i get to do that to myself like i get this greater sense of aware awareness and peace that's a superpower um, yes i call you know i say like it's like these superhuman powers that we've always had that through our societal conditioning and the you know desire for there to be you know control over the masses that we've actually been um we've been like these powers have been hidden from us they've been taken away from us um in in terms 
in a sense for societal control and that like it's our way of reowning our powers to say no i actually can impact the energy in my body and even just talking about the word energy i think is so triggering for people because it sounds like such a fluff word such a spiritual bypassing kind of word but like physics has proven that emotion and energy are synonymous they're the same thing and if we can acknowledge that we have emotions then we definitely have energy and um so teaching people like how to discharge energy from their body that they have stuck um how to you know really honor that like um there's some responsibility that they can take for how they're either holding on to energy or letting it move through um emotion you could substitute for that word um well i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to come down to your clinic and have you do some somatic ketamine therapy on me because i'm super interested in the somatic piece um just because i did a, a workshop with stan groff and saw him um doing somatic work on people and it was amazing what these people moved through um mm. And I've read about the the power of it. Um, I was he doing hands-on work with people. Was he? Oh yeah, he him and his wife were like um, they were spooning people on the floor like together, like sandwiching between them. They were doing hands-on um, pressure. They were doing stuff with with the with the cranium and the skull. They were doing like people were were in their breathwork poses. Uh, you know, with their bodies just you know, flexing their muscles. You know how it goes. I forgot what that's called. Trichinosis. Maybe that's wrong. Yeah. Um, but then he would go over and like make this small adjustment so that they, they go just a little bit further than they were. And then they'd have like this big breakthrough and go into complete relaxation. And like he's doing these amazing things and helping move stuck energy through people. I've had a couple spontaneous experiences myself where in the psychedelic space, my body will contort and, and go into certain positions uh, where like the, the muscles are tense and um, they reach like this, this intensity that I've never felt before to the point where um, this one experience I'm recalling, it was a, it was a five MEO um, DMT experience. And like my, I was laying on the ground and my entire upper torso just raised off the ground as my back like arched back like this, my arms were out wide, almost in like a, like a crucifix position. And all my muscles, all the way up my back and my neck flexed the most intensely that they ever had. And at that moment that all the muscles tensed, my spine um, like popped in like five places. And it felt like a realignment of my, of my wow. spinal vertebrae. And then, it held for just like a couple more seconds and then released and it released into this level of relaxation that I hadn't felt for years and years and years. And I feel like I was just holding traumas and physical traumas that had happened to my body through injury. And I was holding on to emotional trauma and familial trauma in my body. And it needed just a full flex or something to, 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 uh, to feel that release afterwards, you know, and uh, I still have a lot more somatic work to do. Um, I still carry a lot of trauma and stuff like up in my neck and my shoulder. And so I'd love to see what you do and how you do it. Um, Cause I think that's so important. I mean, that's, that's like trained out of us as Western psychotherapists. We're told like, don't touch the client. Don't do any of this stuff. Uh, it's unethical, but, for so long and so many traditions have found that that 
that touch between two energetic human bodies is super healing. It's so amazing. Yeah, I think it's so necessary um, to, you know, be able to help, especially when things get heightened and people feel that contraction. Um, yeah, the the piece for me about um, integration really comes up in this, in that, like, we need preparatory sessions and we need integration sessions mm -hmm. and lots of them because that's where we, we make sure that um, people feel comfortable with skills that they're developing, that they... They, um, there's an opportunity to give consent for, for different kinds of somatic work. There's an opportunity to check in after an altered state. Like, how did that somatic work feel to you? Did it feel supportive? How would you want it to be different? Um, and I think um, getting really clear on that because it is something that typically in, in psychotherapy these days is shied away from and even frowned upon um, a lot of physical contact. And so I think doing it in an ethical and, and really um, conscious and informed way is important. Mm. Um, so before we were talking about like this getting well aspect of the Native American um, peyote ceremony that we experienced, is there a similar thing that happens in somatic work where they're like, um, that's the only thing that I could, I could relate to my somatic experiences and those big releases were kind of like, it was like the body's way of purging that energy was to engage in it most fully and then it, and then it went away you know mm -hmm. yeah I mean there's this term in somatic experiencing called sequencing mm -hmm. and that's when we're like sequencing out the the stuck and stored energy or emotion in our body and so when we're sequencing it out it might be in the form of like a a gesture that our body needs to make um, when we're processing an old memory or maybe you know if there was physical trauma there's a way that our body was like orienting to the trauma as it happened um, that it that didn't get to be completed so there's this like stuck lack of completion in our body so that there's a way that it has to be sequenced out to complete like if someone was in a car accident and they were turning when the impact happened, they might have actually not got to see the threat as it was approaching. And so there's still this unresolved part of their psyche, but also their body. There's a, there's a stuckness in that position. So they actually get to, in the somatic work, orient and fully look at um, what might have been coming at them. I think it helps all the parts of us um, sort of resolve what happened um, something that wasn't of our choosing that was spontaneous and traumatic. It helps us to accept and resolve it. That's so crazy that there's a term for that sequencing. It makes total sense. And I can imagine, especially in the ketamine experience, because it is so dissociative and it allows you to take that witnessing perspective, like it, it forces you into that and mm -hmm. go back to these past traumatic experiences and actually you know, see the memory, but do that somatic turning in, you know, in real life and like experience and actually almost see what was there, like go back and, and see the memory totally differently. And, um, but the way I've experienced the somatic releases too, is usually in sequence, like, you know, I'll feel where it is and then it will move its way out and then out and out and out and then out like my fingertips. And I'm like that. That's so interesting how our body has that uh, that um, intelligence to move things like that way. 
totally. And, you know, like it's written about in Peter Levine's work, um, Wake, um, Waking the Tiger, he talks about, you know, just how if an, an animal, a prey animal is being hunted or chased by another animal and it gets away and it lives, it'll do this thing um, that's called pronking, which is uh, when it'll shake and even jump for joy. Like it's like a celebration of its life and its victory and survival. And so there's a, a really natural way that we also will shake um, when we're sequencing out trauma. So like when people are in car accidents, for example, um, it used to be that first responders would um, hold people down when they were shaking because they thought it was problematic. And now that they know, and I don't know for how long it's been that they know, but they actually know that that's a really healthy somatic response. So they'll encourage people. And I've heard people say, you know, in my practice, oh yeah, I, I had an accident and the, the, the um, medical personnel told me like, that's okay, it's really good for your body to do, let it shake. And I thought that was so exciting to hear. Um, and so when I'm, I'm helping people to contact traumatic material, whether it's in an altered state session or in a, um, a regular psychotherapy session, um, I just teach them like whenever big material comes and you, you're talking about it or maybe you're just through it, um, always just help yourself by doing some shaking, which is um, at your feet and your hands. Um, those are the endpoints where we know that we're able to release some of that stored energy. So it's just helpful to get, um, to help work with the intelligence of our system and encourage it to move through. Yeah, I don't think um, in, the, in Western society we allow ourselves enough opportunity to just shake it out, you know? I think our forms of that are like going to the gym and doing something physical. Um, it's usually something physical that's shaking it out. Um, but a lot of people are not very physical these days. And I think especially during this time too, like during this quarantine and stuff, we all just need to spend like 30 seconds in the morning and 30 seconds before bed, just like shake it out, like in the middle of your living room, make it a thing with your kids, you know? Um, yeah. And I think if we can incorporate just something as simple as that into everyday routine, I think it could drastically affect like uh, the mental well-being of all of our people, all of our citizens, you know? Mm -hmm. That's why exercise is so important. Because it lets you discharge the energy while you know, building up your body. Um, I want to ask you, um, this, this question goes a little bit more broad, um, but the, the whole podcast is about consciousness, right? And we've been talking about different forms of consciousness. And, um, but I want to know, how did you first get interested in consciousness as an idea um, and as something that you can explore? Um, yeah, where did that come from? Where did your interest come from in consciousness? Yeah, um, I think just back to, you know, what I was speaking about earlier when I was 17 and, and losing my father. And I had several moments like that where I, I literally felt my consciousness get bigger. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll talk about that time, like it felt like a near-death experience because it was so traumatic for me. And I, I really had to let like my old consciousness, my old, uh, my old ego identity, kind of crumble to integrate all the new um, information and, and new truths that I had to accept about life and existence. And, and so for me, I was just uh, really 
like there was nothing else to explore or understand because I had to figure that out. I had to figure out what was up with consciousness and and how I knew that there was all of a sudden so much more out there. And so I um, spent like a year and a half traveling. I went to Nepal, um, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji. So jealous. Um, yeah, and I got to to really like immerse myself in other cultures and just become really curious, like what are their beliefs? What, are, you know, not, not coming from this place anymore of like, this is what's right and correct, but just really beginner's mind and being willing to listen. And I think just understanding like how many different ways there are to be and to think and to orient to spirituality in this world helped me to be like, wow, I don't know that there is a, a right or a wrong or an answer or a good or a bad even. Um, it just um, made me really curious about how uh, there's just so much diversity and so much choice. What um, I'm always been curious about this um, because consciousness is it's just an idea, you know. And every culture, even every individual, has their own understanding of what consciousness is to them. Um, and I've been fascinated to hear from people like yourself who've been to other places and interacted with other cultures and asked some of these questions, like what are some of the, the coolest concepts you've come across from other people in other parts of the world around like what consciousness is, what the meaning and purpose of life is, like some of the answers to those big questions that you know, we have our own answers here in the US and mostly it's about capitalism and things like that. but. I'm fascinated about more like other cultures and especially cultures that are like tied to the earth in some way, like tied to the land or, you know, in tune. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good question. I'm kind of like racking my brain for how I can go back to those moments that were so formative that maybe I just even take them for granted now. Mm -hmm. um, I know certainly you know, back to, to Buddhism, um, being really influenced when I was in Nepal and, and seeing the Nepalese way, there's just like this humbleness, there's this real sense of, of living in the present and in the now. And I think that um, just what was so impactful for me about uh, making contact just with the reality of life and, and like letting the stories go, letting the stories fall away that we, we mostly live in. 90% of the time. And so being able to like witness the stories and just come back into contact with our five senses, which is the everyday, um, like the, the reality of consciousness. The moment to moment experience. There is no past or future, you know, yeah. Right. It's interesting, you know, the Buddhist belief around, around that is fascinating in that, um, you know, they believe that in consciousness that um past present and future are all simultaneous um in this moment and we have the ability to access that stuff at any time and you know that lends more evidence to the ability to do like inner child type therapy work where you actually regress yourself or bring yourself back to a memory of, of the past that hurt and provide like some healing to that being in that time and space and then you know, it, I've done it myself and you, it works amazing. You come back to your present day self and that yeah. yourself just feels like 
healed. Like I, I healed myself. I gave myself the support that I always needed back then. And now I can feel that as if I transmitted it back to that entity. Yeah. You can actually go back and heal these past memories in real time. Yeah. And 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 under that belief. It's amazing. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but it, you know, I love that. Uh, it's, it's more, it's like more superpowers, right? The more you learn, the more you understand that, you know, even less. Um, but along the path, along the journey, you gain like these new skills, these new insights, these new ways of knowing, you know, that I think that's, uh, that's my sort of, underlying version of like the purpose of consciousness is to like experience itself. Like it's like the universe is experiencing itself through the thing of consciousness in all these infinite ways, you know, as this can, as every molecule of water within this can, as this pen, as Shane, as Katie, but also in, in every infinite way for every situation. So, you know, in another parallel universe, like, that version of shame didn't show you the pen, right? And the universe wanted to experience that reality as well. Um, so for me, like it's, it is about our present moment and I am just one of those infinite manifestations of myself in, in the multiverse of consciousness, but um, how much it is a gift to, to experience um, life just as it is, because this is like the craziest trip I've ever been on, is life itself, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, um, I don't know, is it is it Shintoism that believes like every object is alive? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and all, also polypsychism in the West here believes that too, that every uh, object has a form of consciousness it may not be like ours but like this has a consciousness of its own too and the molecule the atoms that make up the aluminum have their own consciousness and stuff like that too yeah i think that that has been a really formative concept for me in my travels and um i something i've come to learn through my psychedelic experiences too i mean i remember one time leaving uh it actually might have been the one that we were at together the first one leaving the teepee actually in the morning before the um mm. before the uh, anipi ceremony which is the sweat lodge um and actually seeing the most beautiful thing it was like the seed of life pattern which i've never had like a strong connection to i i wasn't expecting to see that but i saw like the seed of life woven through the fabric of everything from the sky to like the little objects on the floor and it was all perfectly like woven in and i could see it all moving and alive and it had this um kind of like rainbow quality to it that was shimmering so i could like turn my head and the rainbow would move through everything and it just was such a deeply impactful experience for me because i was like i can never forget at at that the fact that everything is so incredibly alive and interconnected mm-hmm. and i was completely you know blissed out and i remember having to say to myself it's just the daytime i'm just experiencing the daytime you know but it was just the most beautiful and miraculous thing and i was like wow this is actually always here and yeah i i hold that pretty dear yeah that's been one of my biggest uh things that i hold on to is uh like the simple things like in your in your medicine work, uh, your, your journey work, you have these moments where you just kind of like zone 
you either zone out or you zone into it even deeper. And you're, I find myself at times like looking at the simplest things like, like a bug on the ground or a grain of, or like a little handful of sand or like a, a weed growing amidst flowers. And you're like, oh my God, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And it's not the, the actual thing that you're talking about that is so beautiful. It's the realization of that underlying oneness. Like as you're looking at it, you see like this is so complex and yet it's so simple. It's so large and it's so small at the same. It's all these paradoxes all at once wrapped into this little weed that I'm looking at. And it's that realization of that underlying oneness that you're like, this is the most beautiful thing that I've ever experienced. And it's available to us at any time we want is the thing. Like as long as we tune into this moment and like you pay attention, just pay attention. Just sit there and look at some inanimate object for five minutes and try not to put your judgments on it and just look at it and experience mm -hmm. it. You know, we can, we can connect with that. That's a superpower we all have that we've forgotten because of, you know, TV and entertainment and stuff. Yeah, it kind of brings me, you know, it reminds me of another skill I'm always working to help people learn and, and tap into regularly, which is being able to take in the good mm -hmm. and um, just how much our nervous system is wired towards orienting to threats and really feeling the impact of the difficult things that we experience. Um, it's just wired into our reptilian brain. And so it's so powerful when we can consciously select for the good things that are already there and available. And then we can take them in, not just, you know, consciously or cognitively, but take them in, take it in all the way through our body to feel it and to process um, the, the good feeling in our system and just savor it longer. Like let our system resonate and bathe in the goodness so that we know um, the way back to that place, you know, in our neurology and, in our practice. Mm -hmm. So taking in the good, a lot of that, so that then, you know, in an altered state's um, time, you can also really make the most out of um, the good parts and really make sure that people get to integrate that into their system too. Yeah, I see like these altered states and, and medicine work as, and I'm including meditation in this too, uh, yoga in this too, but these are all like, they're all tools to, in my mind, it's like helping to strengthen those those connections to the good things, right? To the to the to that orientation. So you you're like blasted open. You see, and you're oriented to the to the good. And if you stay in that, if you focus on that, if you use that that time and that space uh, with intention, then you can like make more and more connections to make it easier to get back to that. It's almost like I, I just, I, I picture like this neuron, right? And it's covered in this myelin sheath. And the more you engage in those mind spaces, like you just add more myelin to the sheath, right? And as we know from uh, neurobiology, like the more myelin you have around your neuron, uh, the greater insulation it has, the faster the electrical signal between brains and so like uh, between neurons and so these connections are improved they're enhanced by um, by this adding of of like protective insulation through the practice yeah and just building new neural connections maybe we don't spend that much time taking in goodness or feeling into good mm -hmm. things and so like there's like underused 
parts of our brain even that we're getting more access to and so yeah yeah um okay well i want to get to um psychedelic parenting and i and i stole that uh that phrase from my friend uh jonathan tompkins who uh-huh. has, a, has a podcast called psychedelic parenting a uh, great podcast um but i want to i want you to tell me what it's like to be and this is out of just pure curiosity because my wife and I are going to start having kids here in a couple of years and I don't plan on giving up um, my interest in altered states by then. I'll probably be further into it by then. But what is it like to be uh, a mother, to be to navigate um, parenting and the teaching of these these concepts of mind, consciousness, spirituality, navigating that from the, the orientation that you're at? Um, while also doing this work that's like cutting edge, but is still seen as, you know, taboo among a lot of a lot of uh, current mental health industry practitioners. Um, you know, I experienced that pushback too. But I can't imagine if I had little ones around, like asking me, you know, what is death and what is, you know, where do babies come from and what is what is God and stuff like how would I, how would I express that? in a way where I'm telling them the truth and I'm not giving them the lies that you know they're fed elsewhere. What's that like to be a parent? Yeah, that's a good and exciting question. I love it. Um, I think it's probably the most passionate area I have of just, you know, my, my own experience currently is like, how do I do this parenting thing well? And how do I represent who I am in it without um, trying to like control who these people become? you know, that they get to really think for themselves. And so I think it's always giving, giving our kids the tools to think critically about things, to ask questions, to um, just, you know, it's like really basic skills actually that, that come up first is like how to really speak your voice, how to um, set boundaries, how to communicate, you know, all these things I think are really valuable tools. And then you know, exposing them to a lot of experiences. I think um, having experiences is one of our family values. Um, and so, and in that sometimes even just a, an experience that is a difficult experience, but not necessarily a joyful experience is a good one to have. Um, and so like our uh, teenager who's 17 now, she's come to a lot of sweat lodge ceremonies with us um, and really, she came to a vision quest one time that we were wow. at. It was so incredibly impactful for her. I remember, I think she would be okay with me sharing this, so I will, but I remember we were at a vision quest ceremony and, and we'd really come to know this community so well. The, the- Can you real quick just tell the audience what's entailed in the vision quest? Just because uh, I always wanted to do one of these. They seem like a, a warrior's dream journey. So t- tell the audience real quick what uh, what goes into a vision quest. Yeah, so a vision quest is when, um, you know, somebody decides that they're ready to, to get more information about their path in life, um, uh, to receive communication about, you know, how they're going to contribute to society and the world um, in a more authentic way. And usually in Native American culture, it, which is where the vision quest comes from, um, it's that it's reserved as like a rite of passage for young men typically. And so, you know, young men are really going into their adulthood, having some guidance and some vision and some marking of that 
passage from boyhood to adulthood. And so I think now it's, it's been, you know, opened up in a lot of ways and still the group that we've done it with has been really working to honor the traditions and the roots while also allowing women to do vision quest. And, and now I think you find a lot of people who didn't grow up native um, and exposed to these traditions, you know, still in their adulthood, not knowing fully who they are, having ever experienced rites of passage. So it's such a gift for um, us adults to, to go through these rites of passage that are really meant for people more in their teen years. And so um, people will, you know, pray about uh, what they're going to receive in the ceremony. They um, have to make prayer ties. It's a very extensive process of like uh, taking fabric um, with colors that represent um, the directions, um, filling them with tobacco, praying um, while you're making these prayer ties. And I forget how many, I feel like it's, it's 108 prayer ties you have to make. And each prayer tie has uh, seven colors. And so it's when you think about how many that is in total it's it's like hours of work and so you pray with making the prayer ties and then the community will actually help walk this person up onto the hill which is where they're going to be in nature um isolated by themselves um exposed to the elements so in traditional cultures um, oftentimes people will have nothing at all that they'll bring for protection or warmth or maybe something as simple as like a bison uh, bison fur or hide um, and so there's like no water no food um, no shoes very basic clothing um, for the elements which you know you're going to be sleeping outside all night um, maybe you'll have a tree for cover maybe you won't so there's the sun element and so people um, basically pick a spot and then the community sort of helps to pray around that person. They put their prayer ties encircling themselves to keep themselves safe. And then uh, that person stays on the hill for a matter of days. Uh, sometimes it's four days, sometimes it's seven days. And when we did Vision Quest, um, we would uh, pray at certain times of the day and sing uh, from like the main camp so that the people who were out on the hill could feel us being with them uh, in our presence, in our spirit, and they could uh, feel the support kind of carrying them through the ceremony. And then they would kind of also know what time of day roughly it was by when we were praying. Nice. That was a lot of information. I don't know. No, that's great. No, <laughs> um, that's incredible. No water for seven days. Yeah. And I think, you know, in our, when we did it, it was four days. So, you know, it's, and it's not that people when they're out there can't gather water, right. Um, things like that. But, um, different traditions have done it really differently. And I think four days is how long our vision quest was. Yeah, that just sounds like awesome for me. <laughs> I want to try that so bad. Uh, and you're right, I think we're missing um, in our culture rites of passage. Uh, and that's a super important thing. But I want to hear about your your, your stepdaughter's um, experience too, because that's where we veered off a little bit. Yeah, it was just that, you know, f feeling the sense of community and um, we were doing like sometimes we would do two sweat lodges a day at that time when we were um, holding down the fort at main camp because uh, we weren't on the hill. We were like in the kitchen preparing the food for everyone and really holding the prayer um, that was stabilizing everyone on the hill. And so um, she was just feeling the sense of community and the sense of being loved and supported by all these people who, um, you know, were kind of becoming like aunts and uncles to her. 
And we had this women's tent that we were in, all the women from camp. And um, my stepdaughter grew up most of her life with just a single dad. And so she has, uh, I think, just adapted some of those traits of like not being as emotional, um, not, you know, sharing her emotions with others and kind of doing that privately. And I remember she broke down and was crying and said she was just so relieved that she realized that she could actually do her emotions with others. And she felt all these women supporting her and um, encouraging her. And I, I've actually seen a shift in her from that vision quest time where it's like she received so much love and support and she realized she could be more open and uh, kind of break down more and that there was strength in being, um, being vulnerable. And I see her living into this like more fullness in herself now um, after this experience. Wow, so the community, that's amazing. That sort of transformation that comes from community and connection like that. Um, I'm wondering what, uh, how do you think that your psychedelic experiences and altered states experiences from the past are going to inform your parenting or do inform your parenting like with, with the younger one, with your younger child? Who's what, like um, two now or something? Yeah, she's almost 18 months. Yeah. Um, I think more, more than anything, it just makes me like a more well, like I have, I've just been more willing to investigate all the corners of myself. Um, and I've really been willing to, you know, look at the, the darkness and the light. And, and I think that, um, I, I live with maybe less fear than I, I did before I was a psychonaut. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, that living with less fear, I can kind of impart that into hopefully my kids' experience that there's really um, not that much to fear um, and that the things that, that are fearful, you know, you hold reverence for and you hold respect for. And um, yeah, that you... I guess it's like trust and confidence in oneself and knowing how to access support. Um, all these things I think I demonstrate on the daily for my kids. Um, but yeah, so one of the, a experience. Yeah, uh, one of the questions I've asked myself, like as a future father, mm -hmm. um, will I decide to tell my kids about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny or will I not? Um, because I remember like as a kid, um, being told those things and then when finding out that they were lies I was like heartbroken and like oh my god like all these adults are freaking liars like I don't want to know them I don't want to be a part of their system um, I think that probably fueled a lot of my anti-establishment <laughs> mentality even today like just being lied to about Santa Claus and stuff so as a future father, I've, I've questioned, you know, will I want to just be as honest and upfront as possible from the beginning and having this knowledge of like underlying connectedness and consciousness and, and that everything's going to be okay. And like, I want to teach those concepts to my kids. Um, but I also don't want them to like miss out in some of the fun with, yeah. their, with their peers. You know, I don't want them to be the kid that like spoils it for everybody. It's like, actually santa claus is like this myth that comes from like you know scandinavia and like you guys are the coca-cola version you know like 
Right. You don't want your kids to be so jaded and, and miss out on the fun and like the this, right. like ceremony that the few like ceremonies that we have in this everyday yeah. society. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think our stance and, and we're constantly like revising and questioning ourselves, but our stance really right now and my partner's stance when he was raising my stepdaughter was um, that we don't like lean in there and, and unteach what they're getting from society necessarily. Like if, if they're excited about Santa and they're hearing about Santa, okay, like we can be into Santa. But then when they directly ask me, is Santa real? Then that's where rubber meets the road. And we get to talk about the fact that, um, you know, you know, why Santa's a thing and, and um, that there are some really good things about Santa being an idea, but Santa isn't real and that that's that's where we step in but we allow it to be present and be enjoyed until um our kids want to know more hmm. i think that's a good tactic like let mm-hmm. let the hard questions come to you don't try and go out there and solve them before the kids have those questions right and i think you know like right now um you know your values always come into like play when different things are going on in society and right now as we've had all this this um you know craze and panic buying and all this stuff happening with coronavirus um our teenager has been really like not tapped in as i think just doing the job doing a good job being a teenager she's just really not been concerned or tapped in and i think taking in what other teenagers are saying which is like uh, that they're just not worried and, you know, it's not going to impact them anyway. And, and so we're really um, having to have a lot of hard talks with our teenager recently where we're wanting to hold her to more um, thoughtfulness and more concern for the greater good um, and contemplating other people's experiences because um, that's just not where they're at, you know, in their development. Like she's not fully developed in that prefrontal cortex um, and she's so you forget like how young they are sometimes because they're so insightful and mature in all these ways. And then you're like, Oh, right. You actually need help being brought out of yourself and taking in these larger concepts. And so we've had a, a lot of challenging moments where we're triggered by, by her outlook or whatever. And, and we want to help her to understand, you know, where society's going and what's happening um, in a larger sense without scaring her. And so navigating all those places is, it's pretty exciting actually. It sounds like, yeah, it it sounds like raising and imparting values and and understanding on youth is uh, extremely fulfilling. Mm -hmm. It is, I feel like it's really exciting. Like, you know, if, if you don't do it well one day, they're so adaptable and flexible. You can come back the next day and repair mm. and, and reframe the message if you need to. But I think that it's, it's a time where my partner and I go to bed most nights and we're like, how do you think we did when we had that conversation and we have to kind of break it down and, and see if we need to get back at it because mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to I want to get a sense from you since you are so tied in with you know so many different things the ketamine clinic um, somatic work um, you know, maps and, and things like that I want want to know what's exciting for you like what's what's the newest what's the newest idea on the frontier of this kind of work that you're just like 
oh my God, that's something amazing. And maybe it's not manifest yet, but it's something I want to do. Yeah. Um, I love that. I think the most exciting thing for me, I mean, the work with MDMA to me is just like everything because I feel like it's so beneficial for resolving trauma. And my view is everyone has trauma and everything's on a spectrum, of course. But um, so I just feel like it's so incredibly healing. And I am really excited about the idea of, of doing um, intergenerational trauma work and doing family work by having MDMA retreats for families um, and really getting to work out, you know, um, wounding and messages that we've had since, you know, before our parents and how that's come through and, you know, grieving together the ways that um, things could have been done better and uh, reframing and uh, yeah, it just, it feels like a really rich uh, environment and really exciting to me to maybe work for or have a, um, a family retreat center. Nice. Yeah, MDMA is quite the healer. Mm -hmm. yeah, what do you think about that idea of, of family MDMA retreat? Oh, it sounds amazing. Like healing. Yeah. I, I also, I was talking with a friend of mine who's um, more in, um, you know, like a civic position in, in, in society. He's like a, like a community organizer. Mm -hmm. We're talking about how you could potentially like heal entire communities with MDMA. Like say there's like a, you know, a flash flood that takes out half the town or something. And then you could say, Hey, we're, it's not mandatory, but we're offering this, uh, this spiritual healing or this MDMA healing session at the local YMCA this weekend. And we'll have professional people here to help us heal as a community. Uh, I think it could be used to heal, you know, gang communities and impoverished communities and communities after natural disasters mm -hmm. and um, help people come together, you know, and love each other as opposed to go into like this scarcity mentality that we're seeing now and like stocking up and, you know, I, I went to the grocery store and I saw people like pushing past elderly folks uh, to get in line before them because they didn't want to stand next to them and like all this discrimination going on. Uh, there's still, you know, some self-serving stuff going on right now, and it's sad, but... Um, it, is, it actually reminds me of this film, which I still haven't seen. It's crazy I haven't seen this, but have you heard of this film, Trip of Compassion? No. So it's uh, about the MDMA study, the phase three study that's happening, and it's a worldwide study, and it's one of the sites is in Israel, and so it, they've actually documented some of that process in Israel, and... Um, you know, in the study, they've got people who are Palestinian and Israeli, and they have to work through some of this, like cultural context um, and conflict um, before, during, and after the MDMA experience for it to go well. And so I think that it's just been something I've been really excited to see, and, and I know that it's been really healing for that community. Yeah, yeah, cross-border healing is possible too yeah yeah I'm really excited for me personally um, I go back to my roots in mental performance optimization and I'm really looking forward to LSD research opening back up eventually um, mm -hmm. and really trying I mean there's so many 
good researchers and good practitioners working on healing um, disease and disorder and and trauma and things like that that's awesome we need everyone on board um, but I haven't found too many people who want to study you know how do we use these psychedelics in a meaningful way to better the well you know to help people who who might not identify as having any problems but just want to transition or, or transcend to the next level of their own consciousness and their own level of connection and understanding with nature and I think that everyone deserves access to these things. You were talking about an expanded access program um, coming to the pipe soon, but uh, we don't have to get into that. Um, but yeah, expanding the access and, to everybody, you know, and, and seeing um, the mind and consciousness and our ability to explore and ask questions as a fundamental human right. This is something that we were born with and should not be restricted as far as like, how we choose to identify with that or, or look into that or, you know, no one, I don't believe anybody should be able to tell me uh, how I can or cannot explore my own consciousness, you know? Yeah, agreed. And I think it kind of reminds me about the parenting question a moment ago, which is like, I, I parent in a way that I accept that, you know, we've been doing uh exploration in our consciousness and with substances since the beginning of humankind and that's going to continue it's an innate human desire and drive and that you know kids our kids our teenagers they are going to explore so whether it's happening you know with us and informed by us or just kind of willy-nilly out there in the world like it's going to happen and so we have a opportunity at how to shape that and bring more safety and knowledge into that realm for them yeah and help yeah we got to break down the stigmas that have been attached to it um so i want to be mindful of the time katie and um you know we've been going for almost two hours and i want to thank you for coming on the show for sure we have a lot more to talk about and you'll probably be one of my um return guests in the near future uh and um but I'd like it just it, last parting words if you had anything that you could share with the audience some some little nugget of wisdom that you've always carried with you in your pocket, something that you've learned along your path uh, through this life so far, and something that you kind of, you want to impart and bring to this collective consciousness toolkit that I'm trying to compile here with this podcast. You know, every guest comes on and shares their tools and they just get added to our, to our toolkit for all the listeners. Um, and I think we all have something equally valuable to contribute some essential puzzle piece that's going to make this this image um, be more visible to us. So what, what would be something like that you'd want to share? Yeah, it brings up so many things. It's like a little hard to pin down the thing to say here. Maybe it could be something around um, just the importance of psychological flexibility. Like, I think that I've just come to see time and time again in my work that like wherever rigidity exists, whether it's, it's in any part of our system, not just the psyche, but wherever we find rigidity, that's like a weak point. And that's a point where we actually can look out for our own health and well-being by saying like, we actually have to go into the places where there is rigidity and generate more flexibility. And, and I think that we, we get psychological flexibility through self-compassion and love 
And so um, learning to be more patient, uh, gentle with ourselves, um, kind, uh, that really bringing that attitude towards ourselves, I call it the attitude of healing. Mm. Um, bringing that attitude towards ourselves, I think is the best thing that we can do to um, stay well and healthy um, for our whole life. Nice. Yeah. I like it. Well, thanks for being on the show. Uh, like I said, I appreciate it. And I'm, uh, if you're down, I'm going to have you on the show in the future. Yeah, and thanks for your time. I've always been impressed by how how long you you know really take to talk with your guests and your podcasts. Like some podcasts are like twenty minutes long, and you really take the time to just get in there. And it's it's really cool to have so much of your time to explore these things. So thanks. Yeah, well, it's super fat. It's fascinating to me, like consciousness and the idea of consciousness and exploring what that means. Not just for me, but now that I know that you know we're all in this together uh, and you know my beliefs saying that you are your your consciousness is just a reflection of my own consciousness too like i need to understand other people's consciousness as in depth as i can and i can only get that through these longer conversations and in future experiences and interactions i'll have with you you know we'll get to yeah. know each other much better totally all right Katie. Totally. Yeah, so until next time, folks, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, this has been Conversations with the Mind. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks. Wow, wow, wow. Thank you so, so much, Katie, for coming on the show. Um, it's so amazing, always, every time I talk to you, to just connect on, uh, you know, on, a, on a new level, a higher level of, of thinking, of consciousness. Um, it seems like we've been having these deep discussions, or it feels like it, for many, many lifetimes, even though uh, I've only known you for a number of years, but, you know, you just meet some of those people and you feel like, uh, you know, this is a person in my tribe. This is my tribe right here. So thanks, Katie. Um, appreciate you being on the show. For all you listeners out there, um, please reach out to us at uh, mindops.com if you need any sort of mental health, um, mental coaching, mental wellness, any sort of uh, mental health support during this time. We have reduced rates and um, open schedule. So reach out if you need it. Um, don't be afraid to take care of yourself during this time so we can come out stronger on the other side. Also, go check out our YouTube page. That's MindOps YouTube page, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S, where you can find video of this episode. Uh, please like and share and uh, donate. You, you can even, you know, you can donate to this show if you want to. Um, no pressure, because I know the economics of our situation is a little rough right now. Um, but I'm going to keep trying to pump these things out for you, give you a little more entertainment, help you feel good. And um, yeah, let's stay connected, people. No more social distancing. This is physical distancing. Uh, let's, let's encourage each other to be more social than we were before. Uh, we're going to need to. So until the next show... Peace out, folks. Love ya. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen OPS.com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, 
businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.